Hello, my name is Paul and it is a privilege to be able to deliver God's Word to you this morning. Before we get into the actual sharing of God's Word, let us first read Scripture together. I will be reading from the first letter of Peter, chapter 1, from verses 1 to 12. Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The letter of 1 Peter contains a very intriguing address actually by the apostle. Whilst for most of this letter, he addresses the church back then in the first century as dearly beloved, meaning those who are loved by God, those who are loved within the communion of Christ, it seems peculiar, however, at the very start that he addresses them not in a relational sense, but actually from a sense of vocation, from that of a particular function of identity. And he uses a very, very specific phrase. He says, to those who are elect exiles. And this calling, this title is peculiar and rather unsettling even because who would want to be addressed that way, isn't it? When we talk about exiles, it essentially addresses people who are not home, people who are in a foreign land. And of course, for us, even today in the 21st century, we all know too well the reality of people who have been displaced, not by choice, through circumstances that have been going on in their home country, whether politically, we talk about religious differences, and people have been forced to flee. Why would Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, address the first century church in such a way? Well, firstly, we do well to be reminded that 
This was written at a time when most of the Christians were scattered, actually, throughout Asia Minor, what is today um, including places like modern-day Turkey. And there were essentially two different groups. The first group were obviously the Jews, isn't it? And the Jews had experienced exile, dispersion for centuries. And in light of this message, if it did include the Jews, you wouldn't be too surprised that Peter would address at least the Jews as being exiles because that was their inherited reality. But we know in the letter of 1 Peter, short one, just five chapters long, that Peter is also addressing non-Jewish Christians, people who were known as Gentiles back then, who had left their previous way of life, who, although were residing in places that they were accustomed to, nevertheless, they felt like foreigners because having embraced the Lordship of Jesus, having embraced the way of the cross, they found that increasingly many of their ways of life, the worldviews, the pursuits of materialism and self-indulgence started to become very jarring to them. And that's why Peter actually addresses them as select, elect exiles. I'm reminded actually of a particular family that I first met 10 years ago. And they experienced displacement literally, politically, religiously. They had been forced to flee their own home country. Their home was actually literally shot at just because they professed faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, they ended up on these shores here in Peninsula Malaysia 10 years ago. And I had the privilege of being able to walk with them, to go through their seasons of hardship, of uncertainty, in seeking asylum in another country. And it was not only until last year that they finally got relocated to a place where they could be safe from such uncertainty. Nevertheless, they taught me a very important lesson, as we will see in the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. They fully knew well that as select elect exiles, they lived within the boundaries of God's sovereignty. Let me read this particular passage to you in verses 1 and 2. Peter says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's interesting that Peter actually tells them that your state of being exiled is not just consequential as a result of people who antagonize you, people who do not agree with you and seek to displace you. Actually, their identity as elect exiles falls within the foreknowledge of God the Father. What, what are we to make of that really? Uh, do we rejoice in that? Do we just say, well, okay, if that's the case, why is it happening? Well, Peter unpacks this even more because number one, he says, well, you are elect exiles. That means God has chosen you in light of your faith in Jesus Christ that you are now given this identity, this purpose, this vocation. It is according to his foreknowledge. It is not just consequential. It's not just because of external difficulties. No, God has allowed you beforehand to go through this. And secondly, it is not without any purpose. You can't say that it's not without any purpose. Well, he goes on to say, well, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. The purpose of going through these trials, as Peter will later on go on to rephrase this identity, is that of sanctification. Now, what does the word sanctification actually mean? 
It essentially means being set apart, being made holy. And it's something that we on our own, sinful humanity, cannot do on our own. It is the work of God, the miracle of God, the cleansing work of God to set us apart so that we no longer cling on to the values and pursuits of a materialistic and self-indulgent world. And so our calling, even today, as it was reflected back then in the first century, is that of select elect exiles in accordance to God's perfect plan for a purpose. And why are we called to this purpose of sanctification by the help of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's not forget, isn't it? When we talk about Jesus as Lord, it means He is Master. It means we yield to Him. We not only proclaim what Jesus has done for us, we choose to walk in that path of righteousness, of sacrificial love, a life of holiness, of being set apart. And that's why Peter can go on to say, it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for, this means the purpose, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, let me go back to that family that I was talking about earlier. They came here as refugees. They were, in every sense of the word, exiles. And yet, they were elect exiles because they understood their predicament not as something as just mere purposeless suffering. They recognized that it was a time of sanctification. They recognized that it was there within the purview of God's planning. They recognized also that being elect exiles did not mean that they would shy away from the world or have their backs just at the wall and saying, oh, woe is me, why am I going through such suffering? No, no. This family that I met with 10 years ago would even welcome me into their humble home, would cook dishes for me, would even say, how can we pray for you even as I sought to walk with them with other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from different churches? No, my friends, they understood that, yes, elect exiles of this loving Father, nothing is in vain, not even suffering. And they used their suffering to point towards the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. This living hope of being born again that goes beyond all of these temporal circumstances as unpleasant as they are. And this actually mirrors what Peter goes on to unpack, isn't it? Because he says, in light of the foreknowledge of God the Father, in light of the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, as at the end of verse 2b. These are not just simply introductory pleasantries, you know, like when you issue a speech, when you write a letter, you have all of this in Bahasa, we say, all berbunga-bunga, all sorts of flowery addresses just to start your letter in the right way. No, these are solid foundational spiritual truths that if you recognize this, grace overflows. Joy is a present reality in spite of the challenges. What fuels Peter's optimism, even in the midst of this identity of being elect exiles? Well, he says this in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He starts by saying, blessed be God the Father, isn't it? Again, he addresses God as Father. 
Well, today is, lest we forget, isn't it? It is also Father's Day. And we want to reflect on God as the Father par excellence. The loving Father who not only is all-powerful, has all the knowledge, but who is the one that gave us the most beautiful gift of all, to be born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Peter says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word bless here essentially is an exclamation, an acclamation to God saying that, God, you are awesome. God, you are great. There is indeed no one like you. Why would he ascribe such an emotional statement to God? Maybe, maybe you could just pause right now and ask yourself, what is the best news you've heard in your entire life, at least to the present time? Could it have been a major breakthrough in your assignments for you who are students? Could it have been that unexpected promotion in your job that changed your life? Could have it been even healing supernaturally? What was once a terminal illness and now even the doctors cannot explain it? Well, multiply that joy by infinity because I am not exaggerating that when Peter says this, he is telling you that we, for those of us who respond to the good news of Jesus, we indeed have this living hope. It is unparalleled. There is no other comparison. It is an eternal and yet very present joy that God the Father gives to us. And it is described as being born again. It is a living hope through the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in his historical and supernatural and factual resurrection conquered sin and death. And that, my friends, changes everything. Because those who walk in the shadow of this loving Father do not need to fear death. Those who walk in the embrace of our loving Father do not need to be feeling guilty or shameful anymore. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ the Lord, the resurrected one. Isn't that cause for celebration? How would you feel about that? Peter says that the church rejoices, isn't it? He goes on to say here in verse 6, In this you rejoice. And at the same time, however, the Christian faith, as much as it, as it is permanently transformed and characterized by this resurrection joy, does not in any way neglect or try to escape from the realities of the present. There will be trials, there will be difficulties, there will be tears. Peter goes on to say in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, many Bible scholars and historians think that at this point in time when Peter wrote this letter to the dispersed churches in Asia Minor, um, the situation at the time was not so much of a statewide or empire-wide persecution like those that they would eventually experience under Emperor Nero from AD 60 onwards. It was just before that. And nevertheless, there was actually sporadic persecution, uh, not so much in terms of incarceration or being thrown into jail, but rather being uh, ostracized by society in general. Uh, in fact, later on, if you have a chance to read the rest of this short letter, it goes on to say that 
many people who look at these churches, at these people who are followers of Jesus Christ, find them to be a peculiar bunch because they do not engage in what was the norms of the day. And it reads here later on, if you have the chance to read this letter, it says things like drunkenness, things like sensuality, things like all sorts of unethical practices in the marketplace. And they maligned the church as because of that. People had difficulties fitting in. And so whilst it wasn't widespread persecution, even unlike that of my friend and the family 10 years ago, nevertheless, these trials were real. These trials would cause a lot of difficulty. I remembered of a time when, um, when I was in college and I looked up to this group of young adults who wanted to start a tuition center here in KL. Um, Everyone was really excited, they got the site ready, teachers were all recruited, but there was one problem. You needed to get a certificate of safety for the building. Uh, and for them, for this, that particular situation, sadly, it was made known to them in an indirect way that they had to grease the wheels, if you know what I mean. And so they were faced with that situation. It's a, it was an ethical dilemma. Uh, eventually, they said, no, we will not try to grease the wheels. Even if it means that our project is delayed, we will do it the right way. And of course, there were different voices at the time. Some people were saying, oh, let's look at the bigger picture. Come on, let's just get it done. Look at the bigger picture. But they held fast and said, no, we will do it the right way. Even if it grieves us, even if it means that we cannot start the work immediately, we will wait until the time is right. We will do it the right way. They persevered and they set up the tuition center in the end. And they had so many powerful stories of journeying with not only students, but with parents of these students through this ministry. Well, trials can come in so many, many forms, isn't it? But Peter reminds us again that these trials come with a particular purpose. It is not just an annoyance. It's not just something that slows us down, gets in our way. No, no, no. All these trials, even though perpetrated by those who are not of God, are nevertheless used by this loving God to purify us, to help us to see that we are called to a different way of life. Peter goes on to say in verse 6, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, isn't it? When one recognises that everything is within the purview of God for a particular purpose of sanctification so that we can indeed call Jesus master and not be hypocritical about it, we recognise that these trials ranging from the, from the spectrum of annoyance to the point of hardship and feeling overwhelmed even, do not define us, but they function to refine us. They do not define us, but they function to refine us, to refine our faith. So that when Jesus comes back again, and that is the hope of the Christian, isn't it? That Christ Jesus, who was resurrected from the dead physically, will come back again physically to make all things new. There will be a time, as scripture says in the book of Revelation at the end, that there will be no more crying due to death. There will be no more sickness, no more pain. The God who created us, who loves us as our heavenly fathers, is making all things new through his son, Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, we go through these trials not only to test our witness, but to refine our witness. 
for His glory. That's not all, actually. Peter goes on and says, he builds on this. He says, though you have not seen this Jesus who's going to come, isn't it? That is our hope. He nevertheless commends the church back then because he says, though you have not seen him, verse 8, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How is it possible that someone loves another without having seen them? The church at that time were now probably second generation Christians. They had heard about the teachings of the apostles firsthand, but they were not eyewitnesses necessarily like the likes of the likes of Peter and the other remaining disciples. But Peter commands them because having heard the gospel, they embraced the person in the gospel, Jesus Christ himself. It is possible, my friends, to love Jesus even though you have not seen him physically, to experience that undeniable and profound joy of the hope that he has given us. I'm reminded again of a time, uh, at least for my kids, whenever we plan for our annual holidays to the beach, and whilst it would be still like three months before we actually went there, the moment I announced it to my two boys, especially the older one who is now seven, he actually immediately started packing his bag. His eyes lit up, the smile on his face. It was as though as, as if it was as good as a sealed deal. That's it. We're already there, technically. Although it was still two more months of schoolwork, two more months of going to school, and then only we prepared one, another one month later to go off to the beach. But I find something about him which is actually quite profound even for faith. Why is it that he had that faith? Why is it that he had that joy? As if it was already within his hands, as if he could feel the sand in his hands already. Why? It's because he embraced the person who promised that trip. And whilst as parents, whether you're a father or mother or a guardian, we may fail at times, isn't it? Because not everything is within our power, right? Something could come up at work. There could be health scares. There could be a pandemic, isn't it? But nevertheless, we see that in God, it is an even higher model, an even higher experience whereby God doesn't only have all knowledge, He has all control. And God brings all His promises to pass. And so for the church back then, as they heard the gospel message, they embraced the one who is not fickle. They embraced the loving and benevolent Father who does not break promises. And when one embraces the person behind the message, one embraces joy. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter says, as they believe and love Jesus, it results in rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. Friends, joy is not something we engineer. Joy is not something that we try to invoke, whether through some form of substances or any other recreational means. Those things don't last. Those things could even cause you harm in the short and long term. But Christian joy is, by, is, is an experience that comes when you embrace the Lord Jesus himself, when you embrace God the Father, when you embrace the Holy Spirit, and he will not let you down. 
finally, Peter reminds the church that this salvation that is already theirs in the present is not just some form of short-term plan that God had just at that moment in time. They thought, okay, maybe I need to throw in Jesus to save the world. No, it is a culmination of his promise. So I talked about that, isn't it? God always brings his promises to pass. And this coming of Jesus to save the world through the gospel message is the culmination of his salvation plan since the beginning of creation. Jesus coming into the world wasn't plan B because Adam and Eve sinned. No, it's not like that at all. It has always been God's plan to save the world through Jesus. And that's why Peter says that this salvation was for you. The Old Testament prophets who prophesied, it was made known to them that it was not for their own service at that point in time, but for you, for the first century church, for the 21st century church, even today. How, how would you respond to that today? To know that God, our loving Father, essentially has got our back. If you feel like an exile today, God's word says that I am coming to you. You may not feel at home, but scripture tells us, even in the gospel of John, for example, that God makes our home with us. So indeed, yes, we may be displaced, Literally, we may feel isolated and not at home, even though we are at home with our families even, or even in our own country. But beyond that, we recognize that home is not based on circumstances. But the reality of home is based on the person of God himself. Secondly, let me just encourage all of us to know that joy is not something that we engineer artificially. Joy is again someone whom you embrace. And when you embrace the trustworthy God who doesn't break his promises, your joy is profound, your joy is certain, your joy is eternal. Because this person whom you embrace is the eternal God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Loving Father, we thank you for your word in the letter of 1 Peter. We thank you, O oh God, especially today being Father's Day, that we have the Father par excellence in you. That we, O oh God, for those of us who have been called to fatherhood, we have you as our model. And let's not forget, we have your Holy Spirit who enables us, O oh God, to reflect who you are how you love the world, how you love your church, how you love everyone, and how you are calling us to be saved from sin and death through faith in your son, Jesus. So Father, I pray this prayer of healing and of hope for all who engage in your word, who sit at your feet, who listen to your word being preached, that your Holy Spirit right now would reach out to them, even as they are sitting down or standing up in, in prayer, that they would just receive with hands outstretched to receive not only this message of hope, but to receive this sense of home in you. And so we pray, oh God, that your Holy Spirit move right now. We thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are with us wherever we are. And because of that, we are at home. So be with us, oh God, as we continue to adore you and respond to your word in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us continue in a time of worship.